Welcome to Your Family Dog, a podcast dedicated to helping families love living with dogs. Welcome back to the Your Family Dog podcast. I'm Tina Spring. I'm joined today, as always, by my smart and pretty co-host, Julie Fudge-Smith. And today we have, like, this is the most excited I think I've been at all in doing the podcast. After much waiting and lots of reminders on my calendar to reach out again and again and again, we finally have Dr. Becker with us. We're so excited. And we got to see an advanced uh, electronic version of Forever Dog. And y'all, I can't wait. I can't wait till it's out. I can't wait to buy it as gifts for people. And I'm so, I'm just too excited. I need to mute myself. But welcome to the show, Dr. Uh, Becker. Well, thank you both for having me. It's a joy to be here. Well, Dr. Becker, we are very, very excited, as Tina said, for you to be here. And um, we both having a chance to get a preview of your book, found it fantastic. And I just wanted to say that not only did I really enjoy it, but there's some features in it that I think people would be really interested in that might encourage them to buy it. Um, the first is that you have a, a very clearly stated theme that you follow through on, eat less, eat fresh, move more and more often, which is reiterated throughout the book. And you explain why. You really deliver on your promise in the preface for information on both the how and the why of canine health, nutrition, and aging with tips and science. So it's great. Um, there's also, too, a really nice balance between science and tips. Um, and the science is good, it's solid, but it's not overwhelming. And it's a really valuable companion to the tips. So don't be afraid to read it, even if you're science phobic, because she makes the science very approachable. And the other thing that I was really, I really loved was the longevity junkie takeaways at the end of every chapter. It's a really wonderful summary of what you talk about in the chapter. And I was thinking that it might even be a good thing to read first, then read the chapter, because it'll give you sort of an outline of where you're going and then read it again. So anyway, I found it to be really fabulous, and I would highly recommend it to anybody when it comes out. If you care about canine nutrition, aging, and general canine health, well, your health as well, <laughs> you should read the book. It's really excellent. So my first question for you is fairly early on in the book, you, you talk about epigenetics, which is a fairly new science. So I was wondering if you could talk to our listeners a little bit about what epigenetics is and how it relates to nutrition and the optimum diet. Yeah, sure. Well, first of all, thank you, Julie. That's, I think it's a, that was a lovely summary of the book, but that's exactly why we wrote the book. Rodney's obsessed with the oldest dogs in the world. And he interviewed, I think almost all of them that were currently the dogs that were still living. He interviewed the owners kind of distilled what they did. Many of them unknowingly, but out of uh, common sense, intuitive ways of raising their dogs, they cultivated ancient dogs, ancient, healthy dogs with no diseases. And I'm, of course, obsessed with literature and science and research. And so what's amazing about some of the top, top longevity researchers in the world is that they're studying dogs. They used to do primarily studies on rats and mice, but dogs are a more species-appropriate model because they translate their research into humans more 
efficaciously, humans and dogs have a have co-evolved together and we share many of the same lifestyle related diseases. So by going to the top human longevity experts who did much of the research potentially on dogs, we were able to derive the information we need to be, then to be able to backtrack to explain why the oldest dogs live so long and here's the research to back it up. So out of that came a lot of discussions with geneticists and people that study both dog genetics and human genetics. And what we know about genetics is that all of us as mammals are born with DNA that doesn't change. However, one thing that a lot of pet parents don't know is that this DNA isn't always expressed. We have these genetic uh, variables in us, and many of us have, all of us have some mutations, which are called SNPs, single uh, nucleotide polymorphisms, which are these genetic variants that we're harboring. And it's the epigenetic influences. It's the environment that surrounds our DNA that either allows that DNA to be expressed or keeps some of those genetic variants under wraps. Food also directly speaks to our dog's DNA. So the food that we feed can either upregulate a genetic potential or downregulate a genetic potential. And it's fascinating because even a lot of veterinarians and human medical doctors are unaware of this. They're, when I went to vet school 25 years ago, they did not talk about how the environment that our animals live in has the ability to heal or harm them. That was not a discussion, but it is now because these epigenetic triggers, which can be radiation, electromagnetic fields, pollution, airborne contaminants, um, chemical exposure, uh, polyphenol levels, which means the antioxidants found from food in the diet have the ability to help uh, nourish a functional immune system response and healthy genetic replication, as well as keeping maybe some of those genetic predispositions that we'd like to kind of keep under wraps, under wraps. So all of these environmental triggers have the potential to keep our bodies in a state of homeostatic balance or allow DNA to express itself that may begin the process of degenerative lifestyle-related diseases. So we talked to scientists that specialized in epigenetics, scientists that specifically specialize in food relating to the genome, are called, are called doctors that study nutrigenomics. So nutrigenomics is specifically how food influences your dog's DNA and epigenetics are all of the factors surrounding your dog that influence his DNA. And there's a lot of them. And when we think about how toxic our world is, not just from the glyphosate sprayed on our food that of course affects our microbiome and in turn our immune system, but even the chemicals that we put on our lawn, herbicides, pesticides, things that we spray around our home, flame retardants that are sprayed on our dog beds. Our dogs are naked and fuzzy. They don't shower every day and they have no ability to communicate with us. Hey, I don't feel good. You know, the, what you're cleaning the floor within the house is really affecting me and causing me to, to, to feel sensitive and, and I don't feel well. So when we look at all of the factors that have the potential to affect our dog's DNA, it can be a little overwhelming. So yes, we dedicated an entire section in the book to looking at the environmental exposures that our dogs have because that plays into longevity. Super. That was a great explanation because I think that uh, epigenetics is one of those terms that people hear, but they don't necessarily 
understand exactly what it means. So thank you for that. Um, I also, one of the things I wanted to mention that um, I love is your use of things like eat less, eat fresh, move more. I Just what a great little summary of what to do to live a healthy life. And I also liked your Forever Dogs formula, which um, is D-O-G-S. And that stands for, hang on, I got my notes right here. Um, <laughs> D for yeah. diet and nutrition. O for optimal movement, G for genetic predispositions, and S for stress and environment. Would you like to talk a little bit about the interrelationship of those things? Yeah. So all of those things interrelate and, of course, not only affect your dog's genome and epigenome, but that really, we tried to make it really simple for people to remember what are all the things that I need to be thinking about when it comes to intentionally creating an improved health span which oftentimes then correlates into an improved lifespan for our dogs. And so DOGS makes it pretty easy. What we have found and what I have found specifically as a proactive wellness veterinarian, and I'm obsessed with food, is that I think a lot of people in my circles, 4.0 pet parents that are also obsessed with food, sometimes we end up thinking food can fix everything. And although food is super important, and in my opinion, it's actually the most important pillar when it comes to what are we doing on a daily basis that can heal or harm our dogs, food, we have to factor in because it's one of the things that at least once a day we're doing. We're not applying pesticides every day. We're not altering our dog's circadian rhythm every day, but we are putting something into our dog's mouth every day. You better make it count. And you better make it provide everything that your dog needs, not just nutritionally, but also everything that they don't need. So you want to put in clean, healthy, whole, species-appropriate food that's loaded with the appropriate macronutrients to give this animal a chance at actually thriving for the day. That's our goal with food. But food is just one component of an overall healthy lifestyle. So if you're feeding amazing food, but your dog has an anxiety or stress disorder that's causing cortisol to be through the roof, that cortisol can actually shorten your dog's lifespan, regardless of how amazing your food is. If you have a dog that you're feeding all organic, free range, ethically sourced, species appropriate food, but the dog is obese and has a cruciate tear with hip dysplasia, dental disease, and a grade one heart murmur, that amazing food is certainly doing what it can, but it's not going to cover the other lifestyle-related diseases. So looking at the DOGS strategy, it's a reminder for pet parents to think about all aspects of a dog's well-being and to, to give equal weight when it comes to addressing all of them. That's terrific. The, the one thing I would add in, and this is something that Tina has taught me, is under S, stress and environment, I might put sleep in there. Because I think that yeah. sometimes we forget how much, and I know like my puppy parents have no concept whatsoever about the level of sleep that their dog needs and that they try yeah. to exercise the willies out of their puppies when what they really need to do is get their puppies down for a nap. So I suppose you could put that under stress and environment, um, but I well, might add a sleep S yeah. in there as well. Well, and keep in mind, that's one of the reasons that we've got that massive section by Dr. Sachin Panda on circadian rhythm. That's also why we have those pop-out boxes about sleep spindles. Because when we visited the Salk Institute and talked to Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Sachin Panda, his entire, he runs the circadian rhythm laboratory. He studies circadian rhythm in dogs. And he was the man that said, listen, 
all these pet parents that go to work in the morning and their blinds are closed, do they know what they're doing to their dog's circadian rhythm? Dogs need the back of their retinas have amazing specialized cells that in the morning they need to get bright blue sunlight that activates melanopsin, their wake up form, and that balances their pituitary secretion of other really important metabolic and well being hormones. By you not exercising your dog in the morning and by, leave, by you leaving your house totally dark only to light it with a bunch of synthetic fluorescent lights later on, do they know the damage they're doing? So when he said that to me, I was like, I don't think so, Dr. Panda, tell me more. And he said, I believe it's cruelty to animals to leave them in a house that does not have natural sunlight streaming in on a daily basis. He said, we're holding our dogs captive in our homes. We're gone 10 hours a day. How on earth can they balance their melatonin uh, you know, melanopsin receptors in their eyes when they have no idea if it's morning, noon, or night? How do they know when it's morning, noon, or night? We, it's our job as guardians to take them outside and let their bodies know it's morning. Bright blue light at, you know, 6,000 Kelvin stream into the back of their eyes. They're getting everything they need to have a functional metabolic hormone response first thing in the morning. He said at nighttime, during the day, open up all of your blinds. Make sure your dog is getting as much natural light into your home as possible. And at night, he said at six o'clock, turn down all your overhead lights put everything on a dimmer. These are all tips from the book that you've already read about, but I'll reiterate them for you. Six Thank you. At night, no more overhead lights, right? Because the sun isn't shining at eight o'clock at night. So our job in our home is to mimic what dogs have evolved with the last 30,000 years, which is if you want to use fluorescent lights during the day, okay. But by six o'clock, you turn those little suckers off and you switch to lower, dimmer, more warm orange candlelight-esque light with lower lumens. I have tabletop dimmers on all of my lamps. And at six o'clock, I start tampering down the light in my house. Draw your blinds at seven o'clock at night. Turn off all the toxic bright light. Let your animal's body start to produce melatonin. Take your dog for a walk as the sun goes down so that your dog's eyes tell the pituitary to start secreting melatonin. Melatonin is the sleepy hormone. If you don't do those things, Dr. Patchen said to us, if, as Dr. Sachin Panda said, if you don't do those things, when your dog gets you up at midnight, ready to party and play, whose fault is it? Their circadian rhythm is totally messed up because you haven't given them the opportunity to adjust and have a natural hormone rhythm because we keep them under synthetic light for too long. He said, how many of your readers and listeners go to bed with a TV on? And I said, I don't know, but probably a lot. And he said, shame on them for not honoring their dog's circadian rhythm. How many people go have bright, bright daytime uh, LED energy efficient lights glaring all evening? I said, probably a lot of people. And he said, shame on them. What they don't realize is the long-term hormonal stress that they're causing on their pets. Hence the chapter in the book called Junk Lighting. Yeah. <laughs> well, wow. We do it ourselves too. Yeah. Right? We, wonder, we wonder why we climb into bed and are jacked up and not yeah. able to fall asleep and then wake up exhausted. And Literally. You know, yeah. As three women of a certain age, I don't know about the two of you, but I do enjoy my sleep these days when I can find it. So yes. all yes. good food for thought. So one of the things that I found really interesting, and I've I've read about this before, but didn't really hadn't grabbed a hold of it and understood it, was talking about 
fasting in our dogs. And I know you're not talking about fasting in the we're not going to feed them for a week kind of scenario. And in particular, we recently were given a dog who is fascinating um, and will torture us about meals. Like I have never in my life seen a dog as relentless as this dog. (laughs) Yeah. And I get that. And, you know, it's a little bit like humans. Some humans get up in the morning and they they start eating at 6 a.m. and they eat every hour because their tummy is growling. They eat every hour until they go to bed because they're they physically have the sensation of hunger. In those situations, we have to look at leptin and ghrelin, the hormone, the hunger hormones and determine why is that off? Are we carb loading? You're either, both of you probably know this, mammals are either fat adapted or sugar adapted when it comes to the energy sources that we burn. If we're fat adapted, we're burning ketones, which give us consistent energy and we have very low insulin levels. The one thing that every longevity researcher told us, every single one that we interviewed for the book, like 11 of them, they said, whoever produces the least amount of insulin wins the longevity race. So every single one of them said, Whenever you eat a big old carbohydrate, when we eat rice and pasta, and when we feed dogs, you know, kibble that is 60% potato or legume or corn or wheat or rice or whatever starch is the starch of the day in the pet food industry. He said, of course, you burn through those carbs very quickly. They're highly refined and your pet's going to be hungry an hour later, just like we are. We eat cereal for breakfast. You're hungry an hour later. If you eat pancakes for breakfast, you're hungry an hour later. If you eat eggs for breakfast, it'll last longer because your body processes protein entirely different than it processes sugar. If you eat an avocado for breakfast, fat, you actually can oftentimes sustain satiation. You're fuller longer because you've nourished your body with fat which of course burns much slower. So when it comes to dogs, if you have a Labrador that's trying to convince you all the time that he's starving and he just might not make it, you end up exactly what we do with humans. You end up having really good love boundaries with calories and you end up helping to cram all that insulin release, not into a 12 hour window, but the goal is to cram all those calories for those food you know, food focused dogs into eight hours a day. So if your dog is, I got to eat in the morning kind of dog, then the first bite of the first snack meal, whatever you decide to put in your dog's mouth, that is when we start the clock and research is pretty darn amazing. Do you know that research done on mice that has been since duplicated in dogs, the same number of calories a day, if you feed the exact same number of calories, let's just say 200 calories for the, for the sake of an example, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, you feed 200 calories all in one meal. And then the opposite days, you split that up into two meals or reduce it, which means at the end of a week, you're getting the exact same number of calories, but you're varying the calories per day and the time that your pet is eating. You can extend lifespan by a minimum of 25%, which is pretty darn amazing. And this is not about calorie control. It's the exact same number of calories. But by cramming the calories into a shorter window of time, in essence, what we're doing is we're allowing the body to rest, restore, and rejuvenate itself 
which is the fasting period. When our bodies aren't eating, our bodies go into autophagy mode, and that's the life-extending, healing-enhancing mode. So even though all of us like to pretend, or that we, I like to pretend I'm a goat or a horse and nibble all day long, every bite of food that we feed our dogs or that we eat, it prompts an insulin release. And when insulin is released, that is when our body shuts down and stores fat, shuts down healing, shuts down the, the, the scavenging potential. So my best tip for you for a dog that really loves calories is don't deny him that, but cram all those calories into an eight hour window. If you happen to work outside the home, it helps a lot. It's when like COVID, it became very clear for all of us that our dogs are like, Hey, you're sitting there having a snack and I need to have a snack too. So the other thing I would mention is that when you have really food focused dog is make sure that every treat that you're giving your animal is biologically appropriate, really matters and is very, very small within that eating window. And we talk about creating an, e an eating window in the, in the book, which is above all satch and panda, stop eating two hours before you go to bed. So I would tell you across the board, all of your listeners, one of the best longevity tips that you can do with any brand of food, any type of food is for all mammals to stop, put the fork down at least two hours before bed. That's a really good tip. But once you start feeding your dogs, if let's say you're doing clicker training or you have a puppy or you're going to class, use incredibly small pieces of food and use fresh foods that are lower on that glycemic index because both of those tips allow you to keep insulin secretion low in your dogs. So in your situation, when your dog is obsessed with food, doing really small portion controlled treats that allow you to really work on behavior modification, build your relationship through training. Maybe you're doing scent work, but use treats for a specific purpose, recognizing that if you can cram all of your calories into that eight hour window, you're going to provide the rest of your time throughout the day for your dog's body to do what we want it to do in terms of creating a functional longevity response, which can only happen when insulin isn't being secreted. The rest of the day, it comes down to tough love which is a lot like we have to do with ourselves, which is, yeah, do I want to keep snacking? I do. Am I going to put the fork down because I am more focused on creating a resilient, strong, healthy body? Yes, I will. And so that's when you do walks. That's when you go outside. That's when you do some tunnel work. That's when you work on weed poles. That's when you go to the woods. That's when you do a full body massage. You do other things that replace eating time to keep insulin low. So, so my customers all tell you I'm good at the tough love part for, for me and for my dogs. Um, I lost 40 pounds during COVID turns out, Congratulations. I'm, a social, turns out I'm a social eater. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think I'm pretty good at, at that discipline side. And what's interesting with this dog is he just turned 11 a week ago. So much of this, um, his behavior was built in and, Yes. Uh, enhanced by his previous situation yes. that yes. he's, he has taught me a lot. We've, he's significantly shortened my list of things my dogs don't do. Um, <laughs> and so, I mean, he's lovely and he's smart and he's charming. He's probably too smart by half. Um, so, so I have heard um, lots of people talk about just faster dogs one day out of seven. Do, any research on that? 
Yeah, and, and absolutely. And I, I do think that that is a lovely strategy. There's a lot of, there's very sound science. That's another point. Some of our scientists um, foundationally would argue with each other professionally. They have different viewpoints on food and that's okay. I think that iron sharpens iron and different viewpoints are fantastic. One thing that every single researcher agreed on is that providing a day of fasting for dogs, not cats, but for dogs is a brilliant strategy. But I have to say as a veterinarian that also really likes animal behavior, that there absolutely, Tina, are some dogs, especially dogs that came out of a start, if they came out of an abusive background, starvation background, depending on their early puppyhood, doghood experiences, there are some dogs who emotionally cannot and should not fast. It's not a physiologic thing. It's an emotional mental issue. And I have had dogs eat drywall during a fast day, not because they're hungry, but because their relationship was food with food was so damaged early on that fasting is not an option for those dogs because they emotionally are not capable of fasting without it being triggered with the PTSD response. So in those situations, we don't fast those dogs, but here's what's cool. You can stuff a Kong with a hundred percent organic pumpkin, freeze it and give him three pumpkin stuffed frozen Kongs, which will take about two hours, depending on how proficient your dog is just frozen food inside of a Kong by definition of freezing takes some time. If you say, well, my dog won't eat. So pumpkin's fat free. And that's why I picked pumpkin high in beta carotene, a lot of great fiber to build your dog's microbiome, hugely important for overall health and well-being, but totally fat free. That's in essence, fasting your dog, but he still gets to use his tongue and he feels like he's eating and he has the desire of going through the steps of creating saliva and the enjoyment of licking. So licky mats and frozen stuffed Kongs are fantastic opt-ins for fasting day or lower calorie days. So my question for you is, um, I did not get to that part of the book yet, but is there in the book, is there a, um, sort of a, a, a diagram of this is how you, if you feed twice a day, three times a week, and then feeding during it, is there a program you list in the book for that? So what we talk about is all the different variables. So for instance, if you have an obese, you had a totally obese dog and you are reading the book and realizes, realizing, holy cats, obesity is like the front and center trigger for a dramatically shortened lifespan. I'm going to get this under control. What we don't do, Julie, is go from people who have, like, have given their dogs the all-you-can-eat buffet where they just keep putting Alpo in the bowl. What you don't do is pick that bowl up after reading the book and say, well, I'm going to feed you once a day. I, my 48-pound dog that's supposed to be 19 pounds, I'm going to measure out this food and that's what you get. That's what we don't do. So we walk through all of the different ways that you can institute what we call in the book time-restricted feeding. Because you're rest- you're feeding the exact same calories to your dog, but you're putting it into a time frame that resonates both for your work schedule as well as the dog's physiology. And because dogs are different. So I have a dog in my life, which is amazing, but he just doesn't care if he eats or if he doesn't eat. And that's rare. Most dogs will tell you, <clears throat> it's time to eat. And they will tell you right on par when it's time for snacks. Dogs are pretty good communicators. If they're foodies, they let you know it's time for food. I actually live with a dog that doesn't care about meals, which makes it fantastic because I can just feed him once a day and it doesn't matter. I'll put it down. He eats whenever I offer food, he eats, but he doesn't come to me and let me know 
I need to eat right now. That's a beautiful strategy for helping pursue his sirtuins, those pathways, those metabolic pathways in his body that upregulate his longevity AMPK pathways that help the autophagy and scavenge cancer cells and boost natural internal antioxidant production and decreases the amount of abnormal cells and cellular damage going on in the body. All of those magical things happen because I can feed him once a day. That's an entirely different strategy than if you have a foodie like Tina has, who says, listen, those once a day feeding is not going to resonate with my emotional well-being." in which case you have to create an alternative plan. So in the book, we provide several different strategies on catering to, if you work 10 hours a day, you're going to have a totally different feeding schedule than if you're at home. So what we do is we give you all the different options for you and your dog. And then your job, because you, you really are the best doctor, guardian of your your dog's well-being. It really, I believe, you know, our job is to know our animals well enough to be able to advocate for them. And in this situation, when it comes to food, you are going to be able to know the personality of your dog, whether they have IBD or diabetes plays into that, what your work schedule is. If you're a swing shifter and work nights, that plays into your dog's uh, eating window. But we absolutely cover in the book how to create an eating window that resonates about around your life and also the physiology of your dog. Because each of those things are very much individualistic depending on your lifestyle. That's great. That's absolutely perfect. Because one of the things that when I'm talking to my owners, I tell them the same thing. You are your dog's best and only advocate. And if you don't advocate for your dog, who's going to, Mm -hmm. but there's also, but I'm also saying, but you know, what's good for you also matters. Cause if it's not going to work for you, even if it works for the dog, it's not going to happen. So it has to be something that is um, convenient for both of you. Otherwise it's just not going to work. So that's terrific. So I, I look forward to getting to that part of the book. Let me just jump in and just say one of the, the, one of my favorite things about the forever dog book is that yes, we wrote it for dogs, of course, but as a veterinarian, what I have found is that humans oftentimes love their dogs much more than they love themselves. And they will take better care of their dogs than they will take of themselves. And while I find this incredibly admirable, And in my practice, I have had people spend their entire kid's college fund on their dog. That um, is a little shocking and overwhelming, but that's the level of commitment that people have towards keeping their dogs well. And yet they do not work as hard on their own well-being and health. The thing I love about Forever Dog is the top longevity researchers and scientists are all human. So one of the statements you'll see repeated in the book is health can travel up the leash. So by us seeing the unbelievable transformation of what putting the DOGS strategy to work in our dog's lives can do, it's not just gratifying, it's life-changing. And I think just by having a living, breathing, adorable picture that we're obsessed with in our house and to watch the transformation occur, it is wildly empowering for us to lose some weight and start moving and think about our sleep cycle and think about how many chemicals we're using around the house. I think oftentimes animals can be the best stimulus for us to clean up our lives because we won't do it for ourselves. But this book, I think, should inspire you to think about doing it for everyone in the house. 
when we got the water report from my local municipality, we're on municipal water, um, I I read it and immediately called and ordered a, had a whole house filter installed. And Christopher was hysterical. He was like, we don't even, you know, we, we I mean, yeah, we bathe in the water. And, and I was like, the dogs and the yeah. cat, like they can't, they're little bodies. They can't. They can't handle all this garbage going into their systems. And so, so I would say that you're right. I'm much more careful about what, how I'm feeding my cat and how I'm feeding my dogs and their water and change the chemicals years ago that I, well, I don't really use chemicals to clean. I use natural cleaners that I've made sure aren't toxic to species other than humans, because I live, I choose to live with species other than humans and they're trapped in my house. They can't just leave if whatever it is bothers them. So I even, I I often talk to families with puppies, like when you're washing your puppy's bedding, run it through one more wash cycle of just clean water to really rinse detergents out. And it's amazing how many itchy dogs that we just couldn't get to the bottom of it. That was the simple solution. Like don't, don't use all the chemicals, like make sure yep. you're really rinsing things because their pH is different. So I, so I do love that you're blessing both ends of the leash with this book. Well, yes. And the, the other thing I was going to say is, is, is one of the parts that I loved and in connection, when you said this, I found the piece of paper that what I wanted to talk about was the idea that self-care is equal to dog care. Mm-hmm. that you talk about dogs can not only differentiate human emotions via chemical receptors, but their own biochemical markers were affected by human um, uh, emotions. So I wanted you to talk a little bit about that, if you could, because I found that to be yeah. quite fascinating. So we visited Dr. D- uh, Biagio Daniello in Italy. When his paper hit, uh, it was released two years ago, and it basically made everyone in the, in the science world and certainly the dog world sit down because he was the man. And we actually watched these, we watched him conduct an experiment and it's fascinating. He was the man that proved that dogs don't just, they're not just able to identify our emotions. When we visited Dr. Daniello's lab, he was working on fear and joy. But since that time, he's expanded to anxiety uh, and rage and sadness. So he's, the list of emotions is growing. When we were there, we were able to see fear and the joy sweat samples be tested. So what Dr. Biagio did is he showed a hundred volunteers. They put cotton in the armpits of a hundred volunteers and they played the shining, the really scary movie where it's gross and it created a fear response in the audience. And then they took those sweat samples and blinded them, but they were labeled the fear samples. And then they put cotton pads in a hundred other group of individuals and played, um, I think it was the Lion King or some happy movie that made you feel warm and fuzzy. And then they put those sweat samples and the samples were both blinded. They tested hundreds of dogs and they put the sweat sample in the middle of the room. The scientists didn't know which sweat sample it was. And dogs immediately would come in the room and within one second of identifying it, they they would, they're wearing vests that monitor, you know, temperature, pulse, and respiration. They're able to, to watch their physiology. Those dogs could identify in less than one second, this is fear. And now I'm fearful, or this is the smell of joy. 
and now I'm happy. So it's pretty amazing. And so we know all of us know that dogs can read us. This is people are like, how much money did they spend on this? Because this is the most BS science. Isn't this common sense? We had to like spend money to do this. Like, are they idiots? And yet, do you know that Dr. Daniello, he actually got a lot of pushback from people saying the science um, is solid, but he had a lot of critics and skeptics, non-dog critic and skeptic scientists say, what a what a hokey thing. This can't be true. Dogs can't pick up on our emotions. Well, they actually can. And those of us that have dogs, of course, we know that they can. And those of us that have had dogs our whole lives know that even, you know, I have, sometimes I have clients say to me, you know, I'm going through a divorce, but I never, I never, we never raise our voice in front of the dog. And we, I never cry in front of my dog. And you know what I say to my clients is, do you think that your dog doesn't know that you're not sad? So even though you're not crying, don't think for a minute that your dog doesn't know that you're cracking on the inside. And they do. Dr. Biagio's research demonstrated this. He actually proved it, that we release hormones, pheromones through our skin that allow dogs to identify exactly what we're feeling. That's also, you'll see some dogs walk up to certain people and be like, ooh, you'll see dogs be like, what's wrong with you, right? You know, you've heard that old adage that, you know, your dog, always be friends with the dogs that your friends chooses and don't be friends with the people that your dog doesn't choose. So I have a deaf pug um, and he's a social butterfly. That's part of why we pulled him from rescue and, and have him in our home. And he's hysterical on orientation night for group classes because each person, I, I want the handlers because the handlers are learning skills to work with a known entity, right? Like we know, we know that the pug is deaf and can't hear them and we'll do whatever their body language is. What's hysterical is when he's meeting people, he is off leash. He's free to go where he wants to go. And he's hysterical. He always points out the person who has rough day. So he says hello to everybody, but he keeps returning to Bob to go. Okay, Bob, hold on. Let me shore you up again. Okay, back. Because, of course, and I think you've had a pug, if I remember correctly, but like they make you laugh. Like it, yeah. I don't think I, if you need an anxiety dog, get yep. a pug. You're not going to hurt their feelings. Yep. But they're going to make you laugh all the time. Oh, Julie. Oh, hot flash. Love Julie's it. burning some Love calories it. over uh-huh. there. This is excellent. So, so yeah. So um, in it, but it made me laugh. Like how intuitive he was, and that I could. I mean, the person wasn't saying like, "Oh, I had a terrible day at work." But a lot of times I would say, hey, have you had a rough day? You know, Al keeps coming over and saying hello to you over and over and making you laugh. And he's super solicitous with those people. Like he views it as his job to make them kind of like. Feel better. Feel better. It's his job to make people feel better. And it isn't that beautiful. I think that I think that because dogs can smell how we're feeling twofold. First of all, for people that are. not at a good, in a good place, emotionally or mentally. And if they're unwilling to get help, because for whatever reason, they don't feel that they deserve to feel better. Oftentimes, knowing that they're, they are affecting their dog's well-being by staying at a dark place, 
oftentimes just recognizing that your emotional state is affecting your dog is enough to pull yourself out of the gutter and shift your perspective and work on moving up the emotional scale because your dog, you're pulling, your dog doesn't maybe want to be at the same place, but your dog is by default because they are our loyal, energetic, faithful companions. They are emotional sponges absorbing whatever we are. So if we're happy, balanced, and joy-filled, oftentimes dogs will resonate with that. If we are sad and depressed and miserable, oftentimes our dogs pick up on that. And despite the fact that they would love to pull us out of that funk, they will match that energy level because they that's how in tune dogs are with our physiology. We've actually co-evolved with them. So if it's not enough motivation for us to work on getting ourselves to a balanced place emotionally, mentally, spiritually, do it for your dog because your dog is wicking off of your emotional well-being. And that alone is enough for us to work up the emotional scale. I do love the fact that Dr. Biagio proved that that's how interconnected we all are. Isn't that cool? I mean, we're all very much connected, but science now is literally proving it. And it also is really good motivation for us to work on creating a healthy, happy home emotionally, mentally, and spiritually. Physically, of course, but also the emotional mental component we can't ignore. Well, I think that's a great summary <laughs> of, of why you want to take care of, of your dog, because taking care of your dog's needs on all levels will probably ensure that you're taking care of your needs on your level so that everybody has healthy, happy, healthy, happy, healthy, happy until we die. Yep. And I think about my dog, Bingley, who is a flat-coated retriever, which I appreciated that you mentioned that both burners and flat coats, his, I lost a burner and a flat coat the same year, both to oh. histiocytic sarcoma. But my flatty was 10 and a half, which is good for a flat coat because their yep. average lifespan is seven and a half. And three, two, three days before I had to put him down, he went for a two mile walk with me and he, um, he wanted to play. Um, but then the last 24 hours I knew that it was time and yeah. we put him down, but I was so grateful for the fact that I was able to provide for him that, that healthy, happy, healthy, happy yes. until we finally had to put him down. And I think it's really important to understand that, that if you have built a healthy dog, that if something like cancer happens, their likelihood of response to treatment is so much better. And as they go through it, they're going to be, I mean, Bingley was happy all the way through it and he responded really well to chemo for a time. Um, so I think that, that because underneath the cancer was a really healthy dog, I was able to, his last nine months of life, make them still really good. So I think that's another thing to consider that even if, something like that's going to happen. We can't get rid of every environmental factor or every genetic factor yes. that affects our dogs. But yeah. what we can do is give them the best chance for as long a life as they're given. So, And Julie, I think that that's a really important part to reiterate because I can't tell you the number of really unbelievably committed pet parents that have said to me, what did I do wrong? And they didn't do anything wrong. They created vi vibrantly healthy animals in a clean home and their dog had genetic deletions that 
meant that they're going to die of cancer at a very young age because of a breed flaw. Genetic deletions mean if you don't have the genes for healthy scavenging of certain cells, you're not going to scavenge them, in which case they're going to accumulate and eventually kill the patient. That's, that is no fault of anyone's. And so some people will say, I, I thought if I had, did everything right, my dog would never get cancer. Or if I, I thought if I did everything right, my dog wouldn't get fill in the blank of a disease. The point that you made was fantastic in that we live in a toxic world with really with a lot of damaged dog gene pools. And the fallout from that is all of us collectively are trying to do the best we can with the resources we have, gaining as much knowledge as we can on a day-to-day basis to be able to make the best choices for doing everything we can for as long as possible. Does that mean we're going to avoid heartbreak? No. Does it mean that when heartbreak hits, we're in the best position physiologically, emotionally, mentally to deal with that overwhelming blow? It does. It does. And that's, I'm glad that you brought that point up because people will say, listen, if I do this, will you guarantee if I do this program of cleaning up my house and cleaning up my diet and cleaning up my lifestyle and cleaning up my emotions, do you promise my dog is not going to get cancer? And of course you can't promise that. But what we can promise is that your dog will be in the best emotional and physiologic state to deal with whatever hammers coming. The healthier we can make our bodies, that's the best protection for aging well with minimal degeneration. It's not to say we're not stopping the hands of time, but we're doing the best we can to age really resiliently. I I think that's a great way of putting it. Thank you. I tell people all the time, 20 years ago, my dogs died of cancer. That's what they died of. Dog after dog after dog. And that started my journey of learning more about how to better keep them. Um, And now I tell people my dogs die of debilitating old age pain that I can't manage anymore, right? Their blood work is like they're two. They're healthy. They're happy. They just have grown very, very old. And so you know, I talk about that my Doberman lived to 14 and a half. I had a Jack Russell who lived to 17 and a half. I consider those really great ages and they were, they died really healthy dogs. Yeah. Really happy dogs. Now it doesn't mean I was ready, right? The only of way course. I was going to be ready is if I went first, but my goal is that not only do they know they, they're loved, they feel loved. Um, yes. and that they're, they're well cared for and that they have a lot of agency in their world as far as what kinds of things do they learn and what kind of activities do they do and what are their likes and dislikes and really partnering with them in journeying through this life, not just me being an owner. Yeah. So yeah. I, yeah. I am Perfect. crazy interested in the gut microbiome. And it's so overwhelming as a lay person to try to learn it. Can you simplify it at all for us? Well, I'll, here, first of all, it is overwhelming. And part of what's overwhelming, Tina, it's that every day, new, shocking, unbelievable science comes out about just how important the microbiome is. Like every day, heavy hitting, unbelievable new research papers that just really boil down to, it's not just, you know, our grandmother said you are what you eat. That is true. But you actually, you are what you absorb, digest, and assimilate. 
and the microbes in your gut that dictate digestion assimilation how well keep in mind dogs eat poo and rocks and sticks they they roll around on their you know their their pesticide sprayed backyard they're licking themselves they're putting all sorts of stuff in their mouth their gut has the unbelievable job of having to discern we're going to allow in nutrients and keep out that poo and the dead bird that is carrying some diseases and all of these potentially parasitic laden um things that the dog foraged on, the gut has this unbelievable job of allowing in certain things and keeping out a whole lot of things. And that discernment lies in the health of the microbiome, which is this collection of viruses, bacteria, protozoa, fungi, healthy, good, resilient bacteria, and the diversity of all of these organisms that are thriving in the gut. When we read studies like just came out four months ago that one pill of flagyl or metronidazole or the diarrhea pill that veterinarians hand out like candy, one flagyl pill wipes out a dog's microbiome for up to 16 days. If you do a full course of flagyl, 16 months, some species of beneficial good bacteria are obliterated. They're extinct. They can't be regained. Those are the studies that we stop and say, oh my gosh. So I think about all those puppies that go through puppyhood diarrhea and they get flagell metronidazole, the diarrhea pull at eight weeks of age. Will they get IBD, IBS, sensitive stomachs, gastritis, colitis at two, three, four, five, and six if their microbiomes are not restored and repaired after one short course of flagell? Yeah, they absolutely are at high risk for major gut diseases. When you start reading the research of what causes microbiome crashing, collapse, or a lack of diversity, what you realize is, yeah, we should be eating spray-free food. Glyphosate, absolutely, totally disrupts your microbiome. Flea and tick medications, totally disrupt your dog's microbiome. Dewormers, you know, done are the days that people say, oh, I'm just going to let my vet deworm my dog because just because. Well, what if he doesn't have parasites? Well, it's no big thing. Well, what do we realize now is that every chemical that we put in our dog's gut that kills things off, disrupts the microbiome. Your dog's immune system is your dog's microbiome. 70% of your dog's immune system is in your dog's small intestine. How healthy is your dog's small intestine is the bigger question. Then we talk about food. What we know is that on the human realm, ultra-processed foods disrupt the microbiome. They're, they contain chemicals and preservatives and additives and emulsifiers and flavors enhancers. The exact same substances that are found in ultra-processed pet food, eating that exact same chemical-laden, high-heat-processed, advanced glycation end product toxic pellets every day from birth till death is not a grand way to build your animal's microbiome. That much the science is clear on. So we have our work cut out for us. Yeah, microbiome is fascinating and a whole lot of work. (laughs) So wait, we shouldn't all eat total cereal three meals a day with our skim milk and be healthy or drink our insure shakes. And and yet where's the disconnect in veterinary medicine? I have professional colleagues say, I disagree that you should feed anything other than dog food to your dog. Isn't it shocking? Yeah. Well, what did dogs eat 10,000 years ago before there was dog food? Yeah. Those dogs were it was more like, what did they eat 150 exactly. years ago when they were before dogs. there was dog food? Yeah. Right. right. I, so I just it amazes me when people are like, oh, don't give them people chicken. I'm like, well, at least people chicken was inspected 
And we can talk about what those standards are too, by the way, but it, uh, it amazes me. It amazes me. I'm like, cereal is not, ugh. oh, yeah. the food thing is so hard. Yeah, it's it is. So, so Dr. Dr. Becker, one of the things that I do for my dogs, for example, is, is they get a uh, probiotic every day. And, um, you know, I, I realize that one of the best things you can do is, is not destroy their probiotic to begin, their biotic to begin with. But are, are there things that people can do to help enhance that? I mean, is a yeah. probiotic daily, daily probiotic a good thing for dogs? So if you think, if you think about all the things you can do to enhance your dog's microbiome, of course, adding in beneficial good bacteria, that's also why dogs eat poo, right? That's gross, but they're just trying to build their own microbiome through diversifying, you know, by eating. Poo is one of the richest sources of bacteria on the planet. So they're just building their own darn microbiome. I love probiotics, rotate through probiotics, go through different brands, different strains, different CFU. The reason that the more diversity that you put into your gut, the dogs get the better. It also plays into probiotic species. So what I would tell you is never sell out to just one brand because you're limiting your dog to just those strains included in that brand. So rotate through every brand of probiotic. I prefer human grade probiotics made for dogs versus pet grade because pet grade probiotics don't necessarily have third party testing for viability and potency, which means you could just be feeding dead bacteria. But even cool research now, Tina, showing that dead bacteria can still feed into the into the microbiome. Allowing your puppies to play in soil. Dr. Anna Hambergman just released a study two weeks ago that puppies that play in clean soil as puppies have a dramatically reduced incidence of allergies later in life, right? Soil, healthy, good soil. Children too. Yeah, of course, of course. Farm children have far less yes. eczema, allergies, autoimmune disease because they're exposed to a healthy microbiome early in their life. Well, this is ideally, why, yeah, ideally <laughs> is right. And and actually, that's one of the tips in our book is if you have a city dog, cool, go out to the country on the weekends and run in a go, do do forest walks. Get your dog on clean dirt, like concrete works, but on the weekends, go somewhere where your dog can touch the earth and pick up and rejuvenate their skin microbiome. So we, you know, dogs have an oral microbiome, an ear microbiome, a skin microbiome, a lung microbiome, a GI microbiome. There's all these different microbiomes that have to be maintained through this constant replenishment of healthy, good microbes. So Steve Brown started the Canine Healthy Soil Project to study how dirt is so important to dogs. And there again, every single research uh, conclusion that, that he's come to is like, oh my gosh, dogs really need a lot of soil exposure. And we typically don't give them that. So probiotic foods are also very good foods that have prebiotic fibers. We have an entire section of the forever dog book on high fiber veggies. So offering great foods like Jerusalem artichoke and asparagus are fantastic. You can uh, all the dark green leafy veggies are really good, but there are some of those high fiber veggies that specifically feed the good bacteria in our pet's gut. So swapping out high fiber veggies for ultra processed dog treats is a really good way to build the microbiome. Cheap, inexpensive. When you cut that, when you cut the top and bottom off your carrots and celery, feed those to your dogs. When you cut the top and bottom off of your zucchini, feed those to your dogs. Those are all biome builders with those prebiotic fibers that help nourish and replenish your dog's beneficial good bacteria. Great. So Dr. Becker, um, for those of us who, for those people who were not fortunate enough to get a pre 
advanced PDF of your book. When is Forever Dog coming out and how are people going to find it? Yeah, so it comes out October 12th worldwide and you can pre-order it now at foreverdog.com. Digital copy, you know, if you're an audible, if you're a you know, if you're a, a book listener and not a reader, it's available in that format. It's available. And I think nine languages now, which is super exciting as well, but it's available worldwide from whatever bookseller that you love. So if you're a Barnes and Noble person, if you're an Amazon person, if you're an indie bookstore person, there's a link on the forever dog about how to work with your indie bookstores. So it is available wherever you buy books on October 12th. Super. Thank you so much for joining us here on Your Family Dog. It's been a really interesting and I think important discussion. And we would love to have you back because there are so many more topics we could cover. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, if uh, if ever you want to come back, we would absolutely uh, love to have you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank so you. Thank you so much. I will tell you, I have referred customers to your videos and your materials and your blogs and articles for years. Um, and it's, um, I always love being able to refer to someone reputable and kind, right? Oh. Um, I, I have been sad to see you get attacked quite a bit. Um, and you have always yeah. like appeared to live in your values and integrity and been kind, even when you have not been treated kindly. So know that a bunch of us are on the sidelines going, go Dr. Becker. Um, and I do love that. I mean, I hate that you get attacked. Um, I also think that great minds will get attacked by the people who don't, you know, like to see the status quo change. And this yeah. is a status quo we should change for ourselves and for our dogs. Well, thank you both for your support. I totally agree that when when we're able to know more, we will make better choices. But that means oftentimes shifting paradigms, shifting gears, unlearning and relearning new information as the science comes out and being able to shift your perspective. And for some people, that that challenge causes them to become defensive and there's a lot of arguing. My focus is sheerly and solely focused on improving the well-being and welfare for animals around the world. So it's easy to um, tune out people who want to argue because I'm not doing this for them. I'm doing this for the species I love the most. So I just, I just focus and keep going. I appreciate both of your support on this mission to make animals live happier, healthier, more enjoyable lives. Thank you both. Well, thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, We'll see you all next time on Your Family Dog. Thanks for listening to Your Family Dog. Got questions? Interesting ideas? Visit www.yourfamilydogpodcast.com to share your thoughts.